If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 13 and 14 of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 13 How I Fell In With The Curate After getting this sudden lesson in the power of terrestrial weapons, the Martians retreated to their original position upon Horsell Common, and in their haste, and encumbered with the debris of their smashed companion, they no doubt overlooked many such a stray and negligible victim as myself. Had they left their comrade and pushed on forthwith, there was nothing at the time between them and London but batteries of twelve-pounder guns, and they would certainly have reached the capital in advance of the tidings of their approach, as sudden, dreadful, and destructive their advent would have been as the earthquakes that destroyed Lisbon a century ago. But they were in no hurry. Cylinder followed cylinder on its interplanetary flight. Every twenty-four hours brought them reinforcements. And meanwhile, the military and naval authorities now fully alive to the tremendous power of their antagonists, worked with furious energy. Every minute a fresh gun came into position until, before twilight, every copse, every row of suburban villas on the hilly slopes about Kingston and Richmond masked an expectant black muzzle, and through the charred and desolate area, perhaps twenty square miles altogether, that encircled the Martian encampment on Horsell Common. Through charred and ruined villages among the green trees, through the blackened and smoking arcades that had been but a day ago pine spinies, crawled the devoted scouts with heliographs 
that were presently to warn the gunners of the Martian approach. But the Martians now understood our command of artillery and the danger of human proximity, and not a man ventured within a mile of either cylinder save at the price of his life. It would seem that these giants spent their earlier part of the afternoon in going to and fro, transferring everything from the second and third cylinders. The second in Alderston Gulf Links, and the third at Pyreford, to their original pit on Horsell Common. Over that, above the blackened heath and ruined buildings that stretched far and wide, stood one as sentinel, while the rest abandoned their vast fighting machines and descended into the pit. They were hard at work there far into the night, and the towering pillar of dense green smoke that rose therefrom could be seen from the hills about Merrow, and even, it is said, from Banstead and Epsom Downs. And while the Martians behind me were thus preparing for their next sally, and in front of me humanity gathered for the battle, I made my way with infinite pains and labour from the fire and smoke of burning Weybridge towards London. I saw an abandoned boat, very small and remote, drifting downstream and throwing off the most of my sodden clothes. I went after it, gained it, and so escaped out of that destruction. There were no oars in the boat, but I contrived to paddle, as well as my power-boiled hands would allow, down the river towards Halliford and Walton, going very tediously and continually looking behind me, as you may well understand. I followed the river because I considered that the water gave me the best chance of escape should these giants return. The hot water from the Martians' overthrow drifted downstream with me, so that for the best part of a mile I could see little of either bank. Once, however, I made out a string of black figures hurrying across the meadows from the direction of Weybridge. Halliford, it seemed, was deserted, and several of the houses facing the river were on fire. It was strange to see the place quite tranquil, quite desolate under the hot blue sky, with the smoke and little threads of flame going straight up into the heat of the afternoon. Never before had I seen houses burning 
without the accompaniment of an obstructive crowd. A little farther on, the dry reeds up the bank were smoking and glowing, and a line of fire inland was marching steadily across that late field of hay. For a long time I drifted, so painful and weary was I after the violence I'd been through, and so intense the heat upon the water. Then my fears got the better of me again, and I resumed my paddling. The sun scorched my back. At last, as the bridge at Walton was coming into sight round the bend, my fever and faintness overcame my fears, and I landed on the middle sex bank and lay down, deadly sick, among the long grass. I suppose the time was then about four or five o'clock. I got up presently, walked perhaps half a mile without meeting a soul, and then lay down again in the shadow of a hedge. I seem to remember talking, wonderingly, to myself during that last spurt. I was also very thirsty, and bitterly regretful I had not drank more water. It is a curious thing that I felt angry with my wife. I cannot account for it, but my impotent desire to reach Leatherhead worried me excessively. I do not clearly remember the arrival of the curate, so that probably I dozed. I became aware of him as a seated figure in soot-smudged shirt sleeves and with his upturned, clean-shaven face staring at a faint flickering that danced over the sky. The sky was what is called the mackerel sky, rows and rows of faint down plumes of cloud, just tinted with midsummer sunset. I sat up, and at the rustle of my motion, he looked at me quickly. Have you any water? I asked abruptly. He shook his head. You have been asking for water for the last hour, he said. For a moment, we were silent, taking stock of each other. I dare say he found me a strange enough figure, naked, save for my water-soaked trousers and socks, scalded, and my face and shoulders blackened by the smoke. His face was a fair weakness, his chin retreated, and his hair lay in crisp, almost flaxen curls on his low forehead. His eyes were rather large, pale blue, and blankly staring. He spoke abruptly, looking vacantly away from me. What does it mean? he said. What do these things mean? 
I stared at him and made no answer. He extended a thin white hand and spoke in almost a complaining tone. Why are these things permitted? What sins have we done? The morning service was over. I was walking through the road to clear my brain for the afternoon, and then, fire, earthquake, death, as if it were Sodom and Gomorrah, all our work undone, all the work, what are these Martians? What are we? I answered, clearing my throat. He gripped his knees and turned to look at me again. For half a minute, perhaps, he stared silently. I was walking through the roads to clear my brain, he said, and suddenly, fire, earthquakes, death. He relapsed into silence, with his chin now sunken almost to his knees. Presently, he began waving his hand. All the work, all the Sunday schools, what have we done? What has Weybridge done? Everything gone, everything destroyed. The church, we rebuilt it only three years ago. Gone, swept out of existence. Why? Another pause, and he broke out again like one demented. The smoke of her burning goeth up forever and ever, he shouted. His eyes flamed, and he pointed the lean finger in the direction of Weybridge. By this time I was beginning to take his measure. The tremendous tragedy in which he had been involved. It was evident he was a fugitive of Weybridge, had driven him to the very verge of his reason. Are we far from Sunbury, I said in a matter-of-fact tone. What are we to do, he asked. Are these creatures everywhere? Has the earth been given over to them? Are we far from Sunbury? Only this morning I officiated an early celebration. Things have changed, I said quietly. You must keep your head. There is still hope. Hope? Yes, plentiful hope for all this destruction. I began to explain my view of our position. He listened at first, but as I went on, the interest dawning in his eyes gave place to their former stare, and his regard wandered from me. This must be the beginning of the end, he said, interrupting me. The end, the great and terrible day of our Lord. When men shall call upon the mountains, and the rocks to fall upon them and hide them, 
hide them from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. I began to understand the position. I ceased my laboured reasoning, struggled to my feet, and standing over him, laid my hand on his shoulder. Be a man, said I. You are scared out of your wits. What good is religion if it collapses under calamity? Think of what earthquakes and floods, wars and volcanoes have done before to men. Did you think God had exempted Weybridge? He is not an insurance agent. For a time he sat in blank silence. But how can we escape? he asked suddenly. They are invulnerable. They are pitiless. Neither the one nor, perhaps, the other, I answered. And the mightier they are, the more sane and wary we should be. One of them was killed yonder not three hours ago. Killed, he said, staring about him. How can God's ministers be killed? I saw it happen. I proceeded to tell him. We have chanced to come in for the thick of it, said I, and that is all. What is the flicker in the sky? he asked abruptly. I told him it was the heliograph signalling, that it was a sign of human help and effort in the sky. We are in the midst of it, I said, quiet as it is. The flicker in the sky tells of the gathering storm. Yonder, I take it, are the Martians, and Londonwood, where those hills rise about Richmond and Kingston, and the trees give cover. Earthwork are being thrown up, and guns are being placed. Presently, the Martians will be coming this way again. And even as I spoke, he sprang to his feet, and stopped me by a gesture. Listen, he said. From beyond the low hills across the water came the dull resonance of distant guns and a remote, weird crying. Then everything was still. A cockchafer came droning over the hedge and past us. High in the west, the crescent moon hung faint and pale above the smoke of Weybridge and Shepperton, and the hot, still splendour of the sun. We had better follow this path, I said, northward. Chapter 14 In London My younger brother was in London when the Martians fell at Woking. He was a medical student working for an imminent examination, and he heard nothing of the arrival until Saturday morning. The morning papers on Saturday contained, in addition to lengthy special articles on the planet Mars, of life in the planets, and so forth, 
a brief and vaguely worded telegram, all the more striking for its brevity. The Martians, alarmed by the approach of a crowd, had killed a number of people with a quick-firing gun, so the story ran. The telegram concluded with the words, Formidable as they seem to be, the Martians have not moved from the pit into which they have fallen, and, indeed, seem incapable of doing so. Probably this is due to the relative strength of the Earth's gravitational energy. On that last text, their leader-writer expanded very comfortingly. Of course, all the students in the Kramer's biology class, to which my brother went that day, were intensely interested, but there were no signs of any unusual excitement in the streets. The afternoon papers puffed scraps of news under big headlines. They had nothing to tell beyond the movements of troops about the common and the burning of pine woods between Woking and Weybridge until eight. Then the St. James's Gazette, in an extra special edition, announced the bare fact of the interruption of telegraphic communication. This was thought to be due to the falling of burning pine trees across the line. Nothing more of the fighting was known that night, the night of my drive to Leatherhead and back. My brother felt no anxiety about us, as he knew from the description in the papers that the cylinder was a good two miles from my house. He made up his mind to run down that night to me, in order, as he says, to see the things before they were killed. He dispatched a telegram, which never reached me, about four o'clock, and spent the evening at a music hall. In London, also, on Saturday night, there was a thunderstorm, and my brother reached Waterloo in a cab. On the platform from which the midnight train usually starts, he learned, after some waiting, that an accident prevented trains from reaching Woking that night. The nature of the accident he could not ascertain. Indeed, the railway authorities did not clearly know at the time. There was very little excitement in the station, as the officials, failing to realise that anything further than a breakdown between Byfleet and Woking Junction had occurred, were running the theatre trains, which usually passed through Woking, round by Virginia Water or Guildford. They were busy making the necessary arrangements to alter the route of the Southampton and Portsmouth Sunday League excursions. A nocturnal newspaper reporter, mistaking my brother for the traffic manager, to whom he bears a slight resemblance, waylaid and tried to interview him. Few people, excepting the railway officials, 
connected the breakdown with the Martians. I have read in another account of these events that on Sunday morning, all London was electrified by the news from Woking. As a matter of fact, there was nothing to justify that very extravagant phrase. Plenty of Londoners did not hear of the Martians until the panic of Monday morning. Those who did took some time to realise all that the hastily worded telegrams in the Sunday papers conveyed. The majority of people in London did not read the Sunday papers. The habit of personal security, moreover, is so deeply fixed in the Londoner's mind, and startling intelligence so much a matter of course in the papers, that they could read without any personal tremors. About seven o'clock last night, the Martians came out of the cylinder, and, moving about, under an armour of metallic shields have completely wrecked Woking Station with the adjacent houses and massacred an entire battalion of the Cardigan Regiment. No details are known. Maxims have been absolutely useless against their armour. The field guns have been disabled by them. Flying hussars have been galloping into the Chertsey. The Martians appear to be moving slowly towards Chertsey or Windsor. Great anxiety prevails in West Surrey, and earthworks are being thrown up to check the advance Londonward. That was how the Sunday Sun put it, and a clever and remarkably prompt handbook article in the referee compared the affair to a menagerie suddenly being let loose in a village. No one in London knew positively of the nature of the armoured Martians, and there was still a fixed idea that these monsters must be sluggish, crawling, creeping painfully, Such expressions occurred in almost all their earlier reports. None of the telegrams could have been written by an eyewitness of their advance. The Sunday papers printed separate editions as further news came to hand. Some even in default of it. But there was practically nothing more to tell people until late in the afternoon, when the authorities gave the press agencies the news in their possession. It was stated that the people of Walton and Weybridge, and all the district, were pouring along the roads Londonward, and that was all. My brother went to church at the Foundling Hospital in the morning, still in ignorance of what had happened on the previous night. There he heard delusions made to the invasion, and a special prayer for peace. Coming out, he bought a referee. He became alarmed at the news in this, and went again to Waterloo Station to find out if communications were restored.
the omnibuses, carriages, cyclists, and innumerable people walking in their best clothes seemed scarcely affected by the strange intelligence that the newspapers were disseminating. People were interested, or, if alarmed, alarmed only on account of the local residents. At the station he heard for the first time that the Windsor and Chertsey lines were now interrupted. The porters told him that several remarkable telegrams had been received in the morning from Byfleet and Chertsey stations, but that these had abruptly ceased. My brother could get very little precise detail out of them. There's fighting going on about Weybridge, was the extent of their information. The train service was now very much disorganized. Quite a number of people who had been expecting friends from places on the southwestern network were standing about the station. One grey-headed old gentleman came and abused the southwestern company bitterly to my brother. It wants showing up, he said. One or two trains came in from Richmond, Putney and Kingston, containing people who had gone out for the day's boating and found the locks closed and a feeling of panic in the air. A man in a blue and white blazer addressed my brother, full of strange tidings. There's hosts of people driving into Kingston in traps and carts and things, with boxes of valuables and all that, he said. They come from Molesley and Weybridge and Walton, and they say there's been guns heard at Chertsey, heavy firing, and that mounted soldiers have told them to get off at once because the Martians are coming. We heard guns firing at Hampton Court Station, but we thought it was thunder. What the dickens does it all mean? The Martians can't get out of their pit, can they? My brother could not tell him. Afterwards, he found that the vague feeling of alarm had spread to the clients of the Underground Railway, and that the Sunday excursionists began to return from all over the southwestern lung. Barnes, Wimbledon, Richmond Park, Kew, and so forth, at unnaturally early hours, but not a soul had anything more than vague hearsay to tell of. Everyone connected with the terminus seemed ill-tempered. About five o'clock, the gathering crowd in the station was immensely excited by the opening of the line of communication, which is almost invariably closed. Between the southeastern and southwestern stations, the passage of carriage trucks bearing huge guns and carriages crammed with soldiers. These were the guns that were brought up from Woolwich and Chatham to cover Kingston. 
there was an exchange of pleasantries. You'll get eaten. We're the beast tamers, and so forth. A little while after that, a squad of police came into the station and began to clear the public off platforms, and my brother went out into the street again. The church bells were ringing for Eversong, and a squad of Salvation Army lassies came singing down Waterloo Road. On the bridge, a number of loafers were watching a curious brown scum that came drifting down the stream in patches. The sun was just setting, and the clock tower and the Houses of Parliaments rose against one of the most peaceful skies it is possible to imagine. A sky of gold, barred with long, traverse stripes of reddish-purple clouds. There was talk of a floating body. One of the men there, a reservist he said he was, told my brother he had seen the heliograph flickering in the west. In Wellington Street, my brother met a couple of sturdy roughs who had just been rushed out to Fleet Street with still wet newspapers and staring placards. Dreadful catastrophe, they bawled one to the other down Wellington Street. Fighting at Weybridge. Full description. Repulse of the Martians. London in danger. He had to give threepence for a copy of that paper. Then it was, and then only, that he realized something of the full power and terror of these monsters. He learned that they were not merely a handful of small, sluggish creatures, but that they were minds swaying vast mechanical bodies, and that they could move swiftly and smite with such power that even the mightiest guns could not stand against them. They were described as vast, spider-like machines, nearly a hundred feet high, capable of the speed of an express train, and able to shoot out a beam of intense heat. Masked batteries, chiefly of field guns, and had been planted in the country about Horsell Common, and especially between the Woking District and London. Five of the machines had been seen moving towards the Thames, and one, by a happy chance, had been destroyed. In the other cases, the shells had missed, and the batteries had been at once annihilated by the heat rays. Heavy losses of soldiers were mentioned. But the tone of the dispatch was optimistic. The Martians had been repulsed. They were not invulnerable. They had retreated to their triangle of cylinders again, in the circle about Woking. Signalers with heliographs were pushing forward upon them from all sides. Guns were in rapid transit from Windsor, Portsmouth, Aldershot, Woolwich, even from the north, among others, long wire guns of 95 tons from Woolwich 
altogether 116 were in position or being hastily placed, chiefly covering London. Never before in England had there been such a vast or rapid concentration of military material. Any further cylinders that fell, it was hoped, could be destroyed at once by high explosives, which were being rapidly manufactured and distributed. No doubt, ran the report, the situation was of the strangest and gravest description, but the public was exhorted to avoid and discourage panic. No doubt the Martians were strange and terrible in the extreme, but at the outside there could not be more than twenty of them against our millions. The authorities had reasoned to suppose, from the size of the cylinders, that at the outside there could not be more than five in each cylinder, fifteen altogether, and one at least was disposed of, perhaps more. The public would be fairly warned of the approach of danger, and elaborate measures were being taken for the protection of the people in the threatened southwestern suburbs, and so, with reiterated assurances of the safety of London and the ability of the authorities to cope with the difficulty, this quasi-proclamation closed. This was printed in enormous type on paper so fresh that it was still wet, and there had been no time to add a word of comment. It was curious, my brother said, to see how ruthless the usual contents of the paper had been hacked and taken out to give this place. All down Wellington Street, people could be seen fluttering out the pink sheets and reading, and the strand was suddenly noisy with the voices of an army of hawkers following these pioneers. Men came scrambling off buses to secure copies. Certainly this news excited people intensely, whatever their previous apathy. The shutters of a map shop in the strand were being taken down, my brother said, and a man in his Sunday raiment, lemon-yellow gloves even, was visible inside the window, hastily fastening mats of Surrey to the glass. Going on along the strand to Trafalgar Square, the paper in his hand, my brother saw some of the fugitives from West Surrey. There was a man with his wife and two boys and some articles of furniture in a cart, such as greengrocers use. He was driving from the direction of Westminster Bridge, and close behind him came a hay wagon with five or six respectable-looking people in it, and some boxes and bundles. The faces of these people were haggard, and their entire appearance contrasted conspicuously with the Sabbath best appearance of the people on the omnibus. People in fashionable clothing peeped at them out of cabs. They stopped at the square 
as if undecided which way to take, and finally turned eastward along the strand. Some way behind these came a man in workday clothes, riding one of those old-fashioned tricycles with a small front wheel. He was dirty and white in the face. My brother turned down towards Victoria and met a number of such people. He had a vague idea that he might see something of me. He noticed an unusual number of police regulating the traffic. Some of the refugees were exchanging news with the people on the omnibuses. One was professing to have seen the Martians. Boilers on stilts, I tell you, striding along like men. Most of them were excited and animated by their strange experience. Beyond Victoria, the public houses were doing a lively trade with these arrivals. At all the street corners, groups of people were reading papers, talking excitedly, or staring at these unusual Sunday visitors. They seemed to increase as the night drew on, until at last the roads, my brother said, were like Epsom High Street on a derby day. My brother addressed several of these fugitives and got unsatisfactory answers from most. None of them could tell him any news of Woking except one man who assured him that Woking had been entirely destroyed on the previous night. I come from Byfleet, he said, A man on a bicycle came through the place in the early morning and ran from door to door, warning us to come away. Then came soldiers. When we went out to look, and there was nothing but clouds of smoke to the south, nothing but smoke, and not a soul coming that way. Then we heard the guns of Chertsey, and folks coming from Weybridge, so I've locked up my house and come on. At that time, there was a strong feeling in the street that the authorities were to blame for their incapacity to dispose of the invaders without this inconvenience. About eight o'clock, a noise of heavy firing was distinctly audible all over the south of London. My brother could not hear it for the traffic in the main thoroughfares, but by striking through the quiet back streets to the river, he was able to distinguish it quite plainly. He walked from Westminster to his apartments near Regent's Park, about two. He was now very anxious on my account, and disturbed at the evident magnitude of the trouble. His mind was inclined to run, even as mine had run on Saturday, on military details. He thought of all those silent, expectant guns, of the sudden nomadic countryside. He tried to imagine boilers on stilts, a hundred feet high. There were one or two cartloads of refugees passing along Oxford Street 
and several in the Marlebone Road. But so slowly was the news spreading that Regent Street and Portland Place were full of their usual Sunday night promenaders, albeit they talked in groups, and along the edge of Regent's Park there were as many silent couples walking out together under the scattered gas lamps as ever there had been. The night was warm and still and a little oppressive. The sound of guns continued intermittently, and after midnight there seemed to be a sheet of lightning in the south. He read and reread the paper, fearing the worst had happened to me. He was restless, and after supper prowled out again aimlessly. He returned and tried in vain to divert his attention to his examination notes. He went to bed a little after midnight and was awakened from lurid dreams in the small hours of Monday by the sound of door knockers, feet running in the street, distant drumming and a clamour of bells. Red reflections danced on the ceiling. For a moment he lay astonished wondering whether day had come or the world had gone mad. Then he jumped out of bed and ran to the window. His room was an attic, and as he thrust his head out, up and down the street, there was a dozen echoes to the noise of his window sash, and heads in every kind of night disarray appeared. Inquiries were being shouted. They are coming, bawled the policeman, hammering at the door. The Martians are coming, and hurried to the next door. The sound of drumming and trumpeting came from the Albany Street barracks, and every church within earshot was hard at work, killing sleep with a vehement, disorderly toxin. There was a noise of doors opening, and windows after window in the houses opposite, flashed from darkness into yellow illumination. Up the street came galloping a close carriage, bursting abruptly into the noise of the corner, rising to a clattering climax under the window, and dying away slowly in the distance. Close on the rear of this came a couple of cabs, the forerunners of a long procession of flying vehicles, going for the most part to Chalk Farm Station, where the North Western Special Trains were loading up, instead of coming down the gradient into Euston. For a long time, my brother stared out of the window in blank astonishment, watching the policemen hammering at door after door and delivering their incomprehensible message. Then the door behind him opened, and the man who lodged across the landing came in, dressed only in shirt, trousers and slippers, his braces loose without his waist, his hair disordered from his pillow. What the devil is it? he asked. A fire? What a devil of a row. They both craned their heads out of the window, straining to hear what the policemen were shouting. People were coming out of the side streets, 
and standing in groups at the corners, talking. What the devil is it about? said my brother's fellow lodger. My brother answered him vaguely and began to dress, running with each garment to the window in order to miss nothing of the growing excitement. And presently, men selling unnaturally early newspapers came bawling into the streets. London in danger of suffocation, the Kingston and Richmond defences forced, fearful massacres in the Thames Valley, and all about him, in the rooms below, in the houses on each side and across the road, and behind in the park terraces, and in the hundreds of other streets that were part of Marlebone, and the Westbourne Park District, and St. Pancreas, and Westward and Northward in Kilburn, and St. John's Wood, and Hampstead, and Eastward in Shoreditch and Highbury, and Haggerston and Hoxton, and indeed, through all the vastness of London, from Ealing to East Ham, people were rubbing their eyes and opening windows to stare out and ask aimless questions, dressing hastily as the first breath of the coming storm, fear, blew through the streets. It was the dawn of the Great Panic. London, which had gone to bed on Sunday night, oblivious and inert, was awakened in the small hours of Monday morning to a vivid sense of danger. Unable from his window to learn what was happening, my brother went down and out into the street, just as the sky between the parapets of the houses grew pink with the early dawn. The flying people on foot and in vehicles grew more numerous every moment. Black smoke, he heard people crying, and again, black smoke. The contagion of such a unanimous fear was inevitable. As my brother hesitated on the doorstep, he saw another news vendor approaching, and got a paper forthwith. The man was running away with the rest, and selling his papers for a shilling each as he ran. A grotesque mingling of profit and panic. And from this paper, my brother read that catastrophic dispatch of the commander-in-chief. The Martians are able to discharge enormous clouds of black and poisonous vapor by means of rockets. They have smothered our batteries, destroyed Richmond, Kingston and Wimbledon, and are advancing slowly towards London, destroying everything on the way. It is impossible to stop them. There is no safety from the black smoke but instant flight. That was all, but it was enough. The whole population of the great six million city was stirring, slipping, running. Presently it would be pouring en masse northward. Black smoke, the voices cried. Fire. The bells of the neighbouring church made a jangling tumult. A cart of carelessly driven smashed, amid shrieks and curses, 
against the water trough up the street. Sickly yellow lights went to and fro in the houses, and some of the passing cabs flaunted unextinguished lamps, and overhead the dawn was growing brighter, clear and steady and calm. He heard footsteps running to and fro in the rooms and up and downstairs behind him. His landlady came to the door, loosely wrapped in the dressing gown and shawl. Her husband followed, ejaculating. As my brother began to realize the import of all these things, he turned hastily to his own room, put all his available money, some ten pounds altogether, into his pocket and went out again into the street.